12. The Boers that satisfied the needs of our forefathers in a less luxurious age. Let us travel first along the old York Road, or rather select our route, going by way of Weir, Tottenham, Edmonton, and Waltham Cross, Hepfield and Stevenage, or through Barnet, until we arrive at the Wheat Chief in Anhalkonbori Hill, past Little Stukili, where the two roads conjoin and the milestones are numbered agreeably to that admeasurement, viz, to that from Hicks Hall through Barnet, as Patterson's Roads plainly informs us. Along this road you will find several of the best specimens of old coaching inns in England. The famous, George, at Huntington, the picturesque, Fox and Hounds, that Weir. The grand old inns at Stilton and Grantham are some of the best inns on English roads, and pleadingly invite a pleasant pilgrimage. We might follow in the wake of Dick Turpin, if his ride to York were not a myth. The real incident on which the story was founded occurred about the year 1676, long before Turpin was born. One Nix robbed a gentleman on Gadshire at four o'clock in the morning, crossed the river with his bay mare as soon as he could get a ferry boat at Gravesend, and then by Braintree, Huntington, and other places reached York that evening, went to the Bowling Green, pointedly asked the mayor the time, proved an alibi, and got off. This account was published as a broadside about the time of Turpin's execution, but it makes no allusion to him whatever. It required the romance of the 19th century to change Nix to Turpin and the Baymere to Black Bess, but Revmere knows Moutons, or rather our inns, the old, fox and hounds, that were as beautiful with its swinging sign suspended by graceful and elaborate ironwork and its dormer windows, the, George, that hunting preserves its gallery in the inn yard, its projecting upper story, its outdoor cell, and much else that is attractive, another, George, greets us at Stamford, an ancient hostelry where Charles I stayed during the Civil War when he was journeying from Newark to Huntington, and then we come to Grantham, famous for its old inns, foremost among them is the Angel, which dates back to medieval times, it has a fine stone front with two projecting bays, an archway with welcoming doors on either hand, and above the arch is a beautiful little oriel window, and carved heads and gargoyles jut out from the stonework, I think that this charming front was remodeled in Tudor times, and judging from the interior plaster work I am of opinion that the bays were added in the time of Henry the I.I., the Tudor rows forming part of the decoration, the arch and gateway with the oriel are the oldest parts of the front, and on each side of the arch is a sculptured head, one representing Edward I.I. and the other his queen, Philip of Hainault. The house belonged in ancient times to the Knights Templars, where royal and other distinguished travelers were entertained. King John is said to have held his court here in 1213 and the old inn witnessed the passage of the body of Eleanor, the beloved queen of Edward I as it was born to its last resting place at Westminster. One of the seven Eleanor crosses stood at Grantham on Street Peter's Hill, but it shared the fate of many other crosses and was destroyed by the troopers of Cromwell during the Civil War. The first floor of the Angel was occupied by one long room, wherein royal courts were held. It is now divided into three separate rooms. In this room Richard I.I. condemned to execution the Duke of Buckingham, and probably here stayed Cromwell in the early days of his military career and wrote his letter concerning the first action that made him famous. We can imagine the silent troopers assembling in the marketplace late in the evening, and then marching out twelve companies strong to wage an unequal contest against a large body of royalists. The Grantham folk had much to say when the troopers rode back with forty-five prisoners besides divers horses and arms and colors. The angel must have seen all this and sighed for peace. Grim troopers paced its corridors, and its stables were full of tired horses, 
one owner of the inn at the beginning of the 18th century, though he kept a hostel, like not intemperance, his name was Michael Solomon, and he left an annual charge of forties, to be paid to the vicar of the parish for preaching a sermon in the parish church against the sin of drunkenness. The interior of this ancient hostelry has been modernized and fitted with the comforts which we modern folk are accustomed to expect. Across the way is the Angels, rival the George, possibly identical with the hospitium called El George, presented with other property by Edward Ivy to his mother, the Duchess of York. It lacks the appearance of age which clothes the Angel with dignity, and was rebuilt with red brick in the Georgian era. The coach is often called there and Charles Dickens stayed the night and describes it as one of the best inns in England. He tells of Scurse conducting his new pupils through Grantham to Dothboys Hall, and how after leaving the inn the luckless travellers wrapped themselves more closely in their coats and cloaks, and prepared with many half-suppressed moans again to encounter the piercing blasts which swept across the open country. At the Saracen's Head in Westgate Isaac Newton used to stay, and there are many other inns, the majority of which rejoice in signs that are blue. We see a blue horse, a blue dog, a blue ram, blue lion, blue cow, blue sheep, and many other cerulean animals and objects, which proclaim the political color of the great landowner. Grantham boasts of a unique ensign, originally known as the Beehive. A little public house in Castlegate has earned the designation of the living sign, on account of the hive of bees fixed in a tree that guards its portals. Upon the swinging sign the following lines are inscribed, Stop! Traveller, this wondrous sign explore, and say when thou hast viewed it or and or, grant them, now to rarities are thine a lofty steeple and a living sign, the connection of the George with Charles Dickens reminds one of the numerous inns immortalized by the great novelist both in and out of London, the Golden Cross, that Charing Cross, the Bull, that Rochester, the Bell Savage, now demolished near Ludgate Hill, the Angel, that Berry Street Edmonds, the Great White Horse, that Ipswich, the King's Head, that Chigwell the original of the Maypole, in Barnaby Rudge. The Leather Ball, that Cobham are only a few of those which he by his writings made famous. Leaving Grantham and its inns, we push along the Great North Road to Stilton, famous for its cheese, where a choice of inns awaits us the Bell and the Angel, that glare at each other across the broad thoroughfare. In the palmy days of coaching the Angel had stabling for 300 horses, and it was kept by Mistress Worthington at whose door the famous cheeses were sold and hence called Stilton, though they were made in distant farmsteads and villages. It is quite a modern-looking inn as compared with the bell. You can see a date inscribed on one of the gables, 1649, but this can only mean that the inn was restored then, as the style of architecture of the stream in stone shows that it must date back to early Tudor times. It has a noble swinging sign supported by beautifully designed ornamental ironwork, gables, bay windows, a Tudor archway, tiled roof, and a picturesque courtyard, the silence and dilapidation of which are strangely contrasted with the continuous bustle, life, and animation which must have existed there before the era of railways. Not far away is Southwell, where there is the historic in the Saracen's Head. Here Charles I stayed, and you can see the very room where he lodged on the left of the entrance gate. Here it was on May 5, 1646 that he gave himself up to the Scotch commissioners, who wrote to the Parliament from Southwell, that it made them feel like men in a dream. The martyr king entered this inn as a sovereign, he left it a prisoner under the guard of his Lothian escort. Here he slept his last night of liberty, 
and as he passed under the archway of the Saracen's head, he started on that fatal journey that terminated on the scaffold at Whitehall. You can see on the front of the inn over the gateway a stone lozenge with the royal arms engraved on it with the date 1693, commemorating this royal melancholy visit. In later times Lord Byron was a frequent visitor. On the high, windswept road between Ashbourne and Buxton there is an inn which can defy the attacks of the reformers. It is called the New Haven Inn and was built by a Duke of Devonshire for the accommodation of visitors to Buxton. King George Ivy was so pleased with it that he gave the Duke a perpetual license, with which no Brewster Sessions can interfere. Near Buxton is the second highest inn in England, the Cat and Fable, and the Traveler's Rest at Flash Bar. On the Leak Road, ranks as third, the highest being the Tan Hill Inn, near Broth, on the Yorkshire Moors. Norwich is a city remarkable for its old buildings and famous inns. A very ancient inn is the Maid's Head at Norwich, a famous hostelry which can vie an interest with any in the kingdom. Do we not see there the identical room in which good Queen Bess is said to have reposed on the occasion of her visit to the city in 1578? You cannot imagine a more delightful old chamber, with its massive beams, its wide 15th century fireplace, and its quaint lattice through which the moonbeams play upon antique furniture and strange, fantastic carvings. The soap-paneled room recalls memories of the Orforts, Walpoles, Howards, Wodehouses, and other distinguished guests whose names live in England's annals. The old inn was once known as the Myrtle or Moldafish, and some have tried to connect the change of name with the visit of Queen Elizabeth, and fortunately for the conjecture, the inn was known as the Maid's Head long before the days of Queen Bess. It was built on the site of an old bishop's palace, and in the cellars may be seen some traces of Norman masonry. One of the most fruitful sources of information about social life in the 15th century are the Poston letters, in one written by John Poston in 1472-2, Mistress Margaret Poston. He tells her of the arrival of a visitor, and continues, I pray you make hine good cheer. It were best to set high's horse at the maid's head, and I shall be content for your expenses. During the Civil War this inn was the rendezvous of the Royalists. But alas, one day Cromwell's soldiers made an attack on the maid's head, and took for their prize the horses of Dame Poston stabled here. We must pass over the records of civic feasts and aldermanic junketings, which would fill a volume, and seek out the old Britain's arms. In the same city, a thatched building of venerable appearance with its projecting upper stories and lofty gable, it looks as if it may not long survive the march of progress. The parish of Hayham, now part of the city of Norwich, is noted as having been the residence of Bishop Hall, the English Seneca, and author of the Meditations. On his ejection from the bishopric in 1647 till his death in 1656 the house in which he resided, now known as the Dolphin Inn, still stands, and is an interesting building with its picturesque bays and mullioned windows and ingeniously devised porch. It has actually been proposed to pull down, or improve out of existence. This magnificent old house, its front is a perfect specimen of flint and stone 16th century architecture. Over the main door appears an episcopal coat of arms with the date 1587, while higher on the front appears the date of a restoration in two bays, it is erroneously styled Bishop Hall's Palace. An episcopal palace is the official residence of the bishop in his cathedral city. Not even a country seat of a bishop is correctly called a palace, much less the residence of a bishop when ejected from his see. Just inside the doorway is a fine gothic stoop into which bucolic rustics now knock the fag ends of their pipes. The staircase newel is a fine piece of gothic carving with an embattled molding, a poppy head and heraldic lion, 
pillared fireplaces and other tokens of departed greatness testify to the former beauty of this old dwelling place. We will now start back to town by the coach which leaves the Maid's Head, or did leave in 1762 at half past eleven in the forenoon, and hope to arrive in London on the following day, and thence hasten southward to Canterbury. Along the Stover Road are some of the best inns in England, the Bull at Dartford, with its galleried courtyard, once a pilgrim's hostel, the Bull and Victoria at Rochester, reminiscent of Pickett, the modern crown that supplants a venerable inn where Henry VII first beheld and of Cleves, the White Hart and the George, where pilgrims stayed, and so on to Canterbury, a city of memories, which happily retains many features of old English life that have not altogether vanished, its grand cathedral, its churches, St. Augustine's College, its quaint streets, like Butchery Lane, with their houses bending forward in a friendly manner to almost meet each other, as well as its old inns, like the Falstaff in High Street, near Westgate, standing on the site of a pilgrim's inn, with its sign showing the valiant and portly knight, and supported by elaborate ironwork, its tiled roof and picturesque front, all combined to make Canterbury as charming a place of modern pilgrimage as it was attractive to the pilgrims of another sort who frequented its inns in days of yore. And now we will discard the cumbersome old coaches and even the flying machines, and travel by another flying machine, an airship, landing where we will, wherever pleasing and attracts us. That Glastonbury is the famous George, which has hardly changed its exterior since it was built by Abbot Silwood in 1475 for the accommodation of middle-class pilgrims, those of high degree being entertained at the Abbot's lodgings. At Gloucester we find ourselves in the midst of memories of Roman. Saxon, and monastic days. Here too are some famous inns, especially the quaint New Inn, in Northgate Street, a somewhat peculiar sign for a hostelry built so it is said for the use of pilgrims frequenting the shrine of Edward I.I. in the cathedral. It retains all its ancient medieval picturesqueness. Here the old gallery which surrounded most of our inn yards remains. Carved beams and doorposts made of chestnut are seen everywhere, and at the corner of New Inn Lane is a very elaborate sculpture the lower part of which represents the Virgin and Holy Child. Here, in Hare Lane, is also a similar inn, the Old Raven Tavern, which has suffered much in the course of ages. It was formerly built around a courtyard, but only one side of it is left. There are many fine examples of old houses that are not inns in Gloucester, beautiful half-timbered black and white structures, such as Robert Reich's house, the printer who has the credit of founding the first Sunday school the old judge's house in Westgate Street, the old deanery with its Norman room, once the prior's lodge of the Benedictine Abbey, behind many a modern front there exist curious carvings and quaintly paneled rooms and elaborate ceilings, there is an interesting carved panel room in the Tudor house, Westgate Street, the panels are of the linen fold pattern, and at the head of each are various designs, such as the Tudor rose and pomegranate, the Lion of England, etc., the house originally known as the Old Blue Shop has some magnificent mantelpieces, and also St. Nicholas House can boast of a very elaborately carved example of Elizabethan sculpture. We journey thence to Tewkesbury and visit the Grand Silver Grey Abbey that adorns the Severn Banks. Here are some good inns of great antiquity. The Wheat Chief is perhaps the most attractive, with its curious gable and ancient lights, and even the interior is not much altered. Here too is the Bell, under the shadow of the Abbey Tower. It is the original of Phineas Fletcher's house in the novel John Halifax. Gentlemen, the Bear and the Ragged Staff is another half-timbered house with a straggling array of buildings and curious swinging signboard. 
the favorite haunt of the disciples of Isaac Walton, under the overhanging eaves of which the Avon silently flows. The old, seven stars, at Manchester is said to be the most ancient in England, claiming a license 563 years old, but it has many rivals, such as the, Fighting Cocks, at St. Albans, the, Dick Whittington, in Claw Fair, St. Bartholomew's, the, Running Horse, at Lefferhead, wherein John Scalton, the poet laureate of Henry VIII, sang the praises of its landlady, Eleanor Reming, and several others. The Seven Stars has many interesting features and historical associations. Here came Guy Fox and concealed himself in Ye Guy Fo Chamber, as the legend over the door testifies. What strange stories could the sold in tell us? It could tell us of the Flemish weavers who, driven from their own country by religious persecutions and the atrocities of Duke Alva, settled in Manchester in 1564, and drank many a cup of sack at the Seven Stars, rejoicing in their safety. It could tell us of the disputes between the clergy of the collegiate church and the citizens in 1574, when one of the preachers, a bachelor of divinity, on his way to the church was stabbed three times by the dagger of a Manchester man, and of the execution of three popish priests, whose heads were afterwards exposed from the tower of the church. Then there is the story of the famous siege in 1642, when the king's forces tried to take the town and were repulsed by the townsfolk, who were staunch roundheads. A great and furious skirmish did ensue, and the Seven Stars was in the center of the fighting. Sir Thomas Fairfax made Manchester his headquarters in 1643, and the walls of the Seven Stars echoed with the carousals of the Roundheads. When Fairfax marched from Manchester to relieve Nantwick, some dragoons had to leave hurriedly, and secreted their mess plate in the walls of the old inn, where it was discovered only a few years ago, and may now be seen in the parlor of this interesting hostel. In 1745 it furnished accommodation for the soldiers of Prince Charles Edward, the young pretender, and was the headquarters of the Manchester Regiment. One of the rooms is called Ye Vestry, on account of its connection with the Collegiate Church. It is said that there was a secret passage between the inn and the church, and, according to the court league records, some of the clergy used to go to the Seven Stars in sermon time in their surplices to refresh themselves. Oh tempera, oh mores. A horseshoe at the foot of the stairs has a story to tell. During the war with France in 1805 the press gang was billeted at the Seven Stars. A young farmer's lad was leading a horse to be shod which had cast a shoe. The press gang rushed out, seized the young man, and led him off to serve the king. Before leaving he nailed the shoe to a post on the stairs, saying, Let this stay till I come from the wars to claim it. So it remains to this day unclaimed. A mute reminder of its owner's fate and of the manners of our forefathers. Another in the Fighting Cocks at St. Albans, formerly known as the Old Roundhouse, close to the river version claims to be the oldest inhabited house in England. It probably formed part of the monastic buildings, but its antiquity as an inn is not, as far as I am aware, fully established. The antiquary must not forget the ancient inn at Bainbridge, in Winslydale which has had its license since 1445, and plays its little part in Drunken Barnaby's journal. Many inns have played an important part in national events. There is the Bull at Coventry, where Henry VI stayed before the Battle of Bosworth Field, where he won for himself the English crown. There Mary Queen of Scots was detained by order of Elizabeth. There the conspirators of the gunpowder plot met to devise their scheme for blowing up the Houses of Parliament. The George Inn at Norton Street Philip. Somerset, took part in the Monmouth Rebellion, there the Duke stayed, 
and there was much excitement in the inn when he informed his officers that it was his intention to attack Bristol. Thence he marched with his rude levies to Keensham, and after a defeat and a vain visit to Bath he returned to the George and won a victory over Faversham's advanced guard. You can still see the Monmouth room in the inn with its fine fireplace. The Crown and Treaty Inn at Ubridge reminds one of the meeting of the Commissioners of King and Parliament, who vainly tried to arrange a peace in 1645, and at the, there, Hungerford, William of Orange received the Commissioners of James I.I., and set out thence on his march towards London and the English throne. The Dark Lantern Inn at Aylesbury, in a nest of poor houses, seems to tell by its unique sign of plots and conspiracies. Aylesbury is noted for its inns. The famous, White Hart, is no more. It has vanished entirely, having disappeared in 1863. It had been modernized, but could boast of a timber balcony round the courtyard, ornament with ancient wood carvings brought from Selden House, an old seat of the Fortescues, near Winslow. Part of the inn was built by the Earl of Rochester in 1663, and many were the great feasts and civic banquets that took place within its hospitable doors. The King's Head dates from the middle of the 15th century and is a good specimen of the domestic architecture of the Tudor period. It formerly issued its own tokens. It was probably the hall of some guild or fraternity. In a large window are the arms of England and Anjou. The George Inn has some interesting paintings which were probably brought from Yeathrope House on its demolition in 1810. And the Bull's Head has some fine beams and paneling. Some of the inns of Burford and Shrewsbury we have seen when we visited those old world towns. Wymondham, once famous for its abbey, is noted for its green dragon, a beautiful half-timbered house with projecting stories, and in our wanderings we must not forget to see along the Brighton Road the picturesque star at Alfriston with its three oriel windows, one of the oldest in Sussex. It was once a sanctuary within the jurisdiction of the abbot of battle for persons flying from justice. Hither came men slayers, thieves, and rogues of every description, and if they reached this indoor they were safe. There is a record of a horse thief named Beryl in the days of Henry VII seeking refuge here for a crime committed at Lid. In Count, it was intended originally as a house for the refreshment of mendicant friars. The house is very quaint with its curious carvings, including a great red lion that guards the side. The figurehead of a wrecked Dutch vessel lost in Koopmanhaven. Helfriston was noted as a great nest of smugglers, and the star was often frequented by Stanton Collins and his gang who struck terror into their neighbors, daringly carried on their trade, and drank deep at the inn when the kegs were safely housed. Only fourteen years ago the last of his gang died in Eastbourne Workhouse. Smuggling is a vanished profession nowadays, a feature of vanished England that no one would seek to revive. Who can tell whether it may not be as prevalent as ever it was? If tariff reform and the imposition of heavy taxes on imports become articles of our political creed, Many of the inns once famous in the annals of the road had now retired from business and have taken down their signs. The first and last inn, at Crosscombe, Somerset, was once a noted coaching hostel, but since coaches ceased to run it was not wanted and has closed its doors to the public. Small towns like Henslow, Wycombe, and Ashbourne were full of important inns which, being no longer required for the accommodation of travelers, have retired from work and converted themselves into private houses. Small villages like Little Brick Hill, which happened to be a stage, abounded with hostels which the ending of the coaching age made unnecessary. The castle in at Marlborough, once one of the finest in England, is now part of a great public school. The house has a noted history. It was once a nobleman's mansion, being the home of Frances Countess of Hereford, 
the patron of Johnson, and then of the Duke of Northumberland, who leased it to Mr. Cotterell for the purpose of an inn. Crowds of distinguished folk had thronged its rooms and corridors, including the great Lord Chatham, who was laid up here with an attack of gout for seven weeks in 1762 and made all the inn servants wear his livery. Mr. Stanley Weeman has made it the scene of one of his charming romances. It was not until 1843 that it took down its sign, and has since patiently listened to the conjugation of Greek and Latin verbs, to classic lore, and other studies which have made Marlborough College one of the great and successful public schools. Another great inn was the fine Georgian house near one of the entrances to Kettlestone Park, built by Lord Scarsdale for visitors to the medicinal waters in his park, but these waters had now ceased to cure the mildest invalid and the inn is now a large farmhouse with vast stables and barns. It seems as if something of the foundations of history were crumbling to a red that the star and garter that Richmond is to be sold at auction. That is a melancholy fate for perhaps the most famous inn in the country a place at which princes and statesmen have stayed, and to which Louis Philippe and his queen resorted. The star and garter has figured in the romances of some of our greatest novelists. One comes across it in Meredith and Thackeray and it finds its way into numerous memoirs, nearly always with some comment upon its unique beauty of situation, a beauty that was never more real than at this moment when the spring foliage is just beginning to peep. The motor and changing habits account for the evil days upon which the hostelry has fallen. Trains and trams have brought to the doors almost of the star and garter, a public that has not the means to make use of its 120 bedrooms. The richer patrons of other days flash past on their motors making for those resorts higher up the river which are filling the place in the economy of the London Sunday and weekend which Richmond occupied in times when traveling was more difficult. These changes are inevitable. The ship at Greenwich has gone, and cabinet ministers can no longer dine there. The convalescent home, which was the undoing of certain popular guardians, is housed in an hotel as famous as the ship. In its days once the resort of Pitt and his bosom friends, indeed, a pathetic history might be written of the famous hostelries of the past. Not far from Marlborough is Davises, formerly a great coaching center, and full of inns, of which the most noted is the Bear, still a thriving hostel, once the home of the great artist Sir Thomas Lawrence, whose father was the landlord. It is impossible within one chapter to record all the old inns of England. We have still a vast number left and chronicled but perhaps a sufficient number of examples has been given of this important feature of vanishing England. Some of these are old and crumbling, and may die of old age. Others will fall a prey to a licensing committees. Some have been left high and dry, deserted by the stream of guests that flowed to them in the old coaching days. Motor cars have resuscitated some and brought prosperity and life to the old guest-haunted chambers. We cannot dwell on the curious signs that greet us as we travel along the old highways or strive to interpret their origin and meaning. We are rather fond in Berkshire of the five alls, the interpretation of which is cryptic. The five alls are, if I remember right, I rule all, the king. I pray for all, the bishop. I plead for all, the barrister. I fight for all, the soldier. I pay for all, the farmer. One of the most humorous in signs is, the man loaded with mischief, which is found about a mile from Cambridge, on the Maidingley Road. The original mischief was designed by Hogarth for a public house in Oxford Street. It is needless to say that the signboard, and even the name, have long ago disappeared from the busy London thoroughfare, but the quaint device must have been extensively copied by country sign painters. There is a mischief at Wallingford, and a load of mischief at Norwich, and another at Blueberry.
the inn on the Matingly Road exhibits the sign in its original form, though the colors are much faded from exposure to the weather. Traces of Hogarthian humor can be detected. A man is staggering under the weight of a woman, who is on his back. She is holding a glass of gin in her hand, a chain and padlock are round the man's neck. Labeled, wedlock. On the right-hand side is the shop of, escripe, pawnbroker, and a carpenter is just going in to pledge his tools. The art of painting signboards is almost lost, and when they have to be renewed sorry attempts are made to imitate the old designs. Some celebrated artists have not thought it below their dignity to paint signboards. Some have done this to show their gratitude to their kindly host and hostess for favors received when they sojourned at inns during their sketching expeditions. The George at Wargrave has a sign painted by the distinguished painters Mr. George Leslie, R.A. and Mr. Broaden, R.A. who, when staying at the inn, kindly painted the sign, which is hung carefully within doors that it may not be exposed to the mists and rains of the Thames Valley. St. George is sallying forth to slay the dragon on the one side, and on the reverse he is refreshing himself with a tankard of ale after his labors. Not a few artists in the early stages of their career have paid their bills at inns by painting for the landlord. Moreland was always in difficulties and adorned many a signboard, and the art of David Cox, Herring, and Sir William Beachy has been displayed in this homely fashion. David Cox's painting of the Royal Oak at Betu's White Oak was the subject of prolonged litigation, the sign being valued at L1000, the case being carried to the House of Lords, and there decided in favor of the freeholder. Sometimes strange notices appear in inns. The following rather remarkable one was seen by our artist at the County Arms, Stone, near Aylesbury. A man is specially engaged to do all the cursing and swearing that is required in this establishment. A dog is also kept to do all the barking. Our prize fighter and chucker out has won 75 prize fights and has never been beaten, and is a splendid shot with the revolver. An undertaker calls here for orders every morning. Motor cars have somewhat revived the life of the old inns on the great coaching roads, but it is only the larger and more important. Oh.